open in prayer. Thank you, Saxon. I'm going to open in prayer and dig into the Word. We're going to, technically last week, but we're going in a new direction. We're going to take a little bit of a break from John. We went through the first 12 chapters. We're going to come back to chapter 13, probably in the new year. But um, I, I want us to head into a new series. A number of you have questions uh, with regard to last week and some other questions that I hope I'm going to be able to address many of them in this new series. But before we do that, let me open in prayer. All right, Father, I want to thank you that you are here right now and your desire is to be our teacher. And so, Father, I just ask that any of the words that come from my mouth that are just simply of Mike Curtis and not of your spirit, just let them fall to the ground. But, Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts tonight and so encourage us, Lord, with your words. Father, I pray that your word would speak to our hearts and that you would be the revealer of our hearts. And that, Father, that we would want you and want to obey you and follow after you more than anything in this world. More than anything. And so, Lord, I just pray, because of that, speak to our hearts. Be our good shepherd and lead us. Lead us into green pastures. Lead us beside streams of still waters that our souls would be restored. Do that, Father, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Well, I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. I need to be honest with you. I came to Christ when I was 14 years of age. That's kind of young. I grew up in a Christian home, and so my mom would always take us to Sunday school and to church, unless, of course, I played sick, which was relatively regularly. However, when I was about 12, 13 years of age, I was just so curious about the end times. I picked up a book by Hal Lindsey, Not the Late Great Planet Earth. Um, I had definitely read portions of that, but I focused on his book, There's a New World Coming, which is his study in Revelation. He comes from a very particular millennial view. And at that time in my life, I, just, I was just hungry. I was curious. I wanted to know, oh my goodness, is Jesus coming back in our day? Now, don't get me wrong. I really didn't care a whole lot for Jesus. I just, I didn't. I didn't want to follow him. I wanted to do life my way, but I was curious. What's life going to be like? How many of you would love to know what your future holds? Some of you are thinking it looks pretty bad, so I really don't want to know. But the truth is, what most of us want to know. And according to this book, Jesus was supposed to come back in 1988. Um, newsflash, he didn't. But, um, and, and I'm sure that there have been so many prognosticators, so many people saying he's coming back here and here and this date and this date, apparently what, this past May 21st, he was supposed to come back again. I don't know what his problem is, but he's just chosen not to come back yet. But the truth is, there's a lot of questions in the church and actually outside the church as well with regard to the end times. How many of you have seen any of the episodes or installments of Left Behind? Raise your hand. You either read the book or saw a movie, Left Behind. Okay, um, I, I, I saw a few of them. I can't say I saw all of them. I have no idea how many are out there. But I know that that series has promoted a particular view of the end times that's just very attractive. It's, I, I don't want to say this in a negative way. I don't mean for it to, but it is sensational. It's, it's like, wow, really? And all of this amazing stuff is going to happen, and it's based on Revelation, a book that is filled with symbol. Um, their perspective is that much of revelation is literal. Um, so what I would like to do 
is I would like to have us go on a series with regard to what's commonly called the Day of the Lord. And I'm going to lay out for you a number of things that according to Scripture is supposed to happen on the Day of the Lord. Now there's other things that will happen, but the phrase the Day of the Lord or the Day of God is not attached to it. So I'm just going to stick with what we do know. What we do know from Scripture. Now, here's... the, the title of the series is called The End with a question mark. Now this phrase, the end, we find in Daniel, we find other places in the Old Testament, we find in the New Testament. It, it's many places, the end. But I don't know about you, when I was a kid, th- th- it was very common when you're reading a book, the very last chapter, the very last page, it says right at the very bottom, what? The end. When in actuality, church, when we're talking about the end, what we're really talking about as you read and study it in the Bible is it is the end of this age, but it is the beginning of a new age. Not like new age as that phrase is used today, like new age theology. I'm talking about a new day that is coming. And so technically, though I'm entitling this, this the end because that is a phrase commonly used in the Bible, it is really the beginning of the rest of eternity, but this age is going to come to an end. What does that look like? What's supposed that culminates, the end of this age culminates in the day of the Lord? What's, what's the day of the Lord? We, we need to answer that. And then I want us to look at certain things that Scripture says will happen before. We are not going through the book of Revelation. We're going to be covering a few things. But here's what I do know. What I'm about to share with you is very controversial. Very controversial. As a matter of fact, it is very controversial in our church. There are going to be some of you, maybe most of you, I don't know, that you're going to disagree. You may even disagree with my sermon today. I'm okay with that because I realize that in the Bible that there is one thing that we will never disagree on and that is the gospel because Christ is the very central figure. We don't just believe the gospel. We don't just believe Jesus. We believe in Jesus and because of that, I place my trust in him. I surrender to him. I submit my life to him. This is what believe means. Of course, That didn't occur to me until I was 14 years of age. I had already read through Revelation probably a couple of times. I had devoured Hal Lindsey's book, There's a New World Coming. And then I began to realize I am not saved. I am not ready. And that's when I placed my faith. That's when I surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ and why he had to die on the cross for me. It wasn't just a nice story of sacrifice. And so I, was, I, I realized that the gospel is what we all focus and center on, but there are certain things that come out of that that begin to move further and further away, not as if they're not truth. Of course they are, but it is more debatable, and our salvation does not hinge on those. Today, over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to talk about something in which your salvation does not hinge on it. The day of the Lord. There's going to be a wide variety of opinions in our midst. And by opinions, I mean people who have studied the word and they see it differently. Some of you, you're going to see that difference today. I hold a view on the coming of the Lord that is going to be different. So it may be controversial. So what this, what this red flags me is, you know what, Mike, when you're sharing this, be really humble. 
So here's what I want to do. If you hear me be arrogant, now please don't misunderstand my passion for arrogance, okay? I truly do not want to convey arrogance, okay? But I am passionate. I'm very passionate about what I believe, even outside of the gospel. But I will be passionate. And I want you to recognize that you have freedom to hold a different view than me. But here's what I'm going to ask. Since you're a part of my church and I'm called to be your shepherd, your pastor, your, the one who cares for you, can you please honor me by actually researching these scriptures that I'm going to give you? And I'm going to walk you through a number of them today. But can you do that? Can you be good Bereans in Acts 17? Paul preached and the Bereans searched the scriptures to see whether the things he said were true. Can you do that? So you're going to need to write these things down. I'm going to bring my whiteboard around and... We're going to get into this in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The day of the Lord. So I'm going to entitle this message, The Coming of the Lord. It could also be entitled, The Rapture Question. Okay? You buckled your seatbelts. I've already prayed. One last thing, though, before we get into reading this passage. We recognize that this is controversial. We recognize that not only should I, as God's servant, be humbled, humble, but can you join me in that humility? I'm going to do my best, but can you be humble? Can you be teachable? Could you be open to a different perspective that just might be right? I'm not saying that I am right. I mean, I believe I am, but I may, I may be wrong. I may be wrong. And I, I recognize that. But here's what we're going to need to do. This is not just a theological class, the end times 101. That's not what this is. Though we're going to touch on many things. We recognize that they are in the scriptures for a reason. They're in the scriptures. Even today, I'm going to read just past chapter 4 into chapter 5. And you're going to find out the reason why Paul even brings this up. And he brings it up again in 2 Thessalonians 2. We're going to look at that a little bit. But you know what? There is application that we need to grab a hold of. We need to listen to. We need to let God's Spirit search our hearts and guide us into the way we should live. When I stand before, and I mentioned this to you, but when I stand before Jesus, he's not going to ask me, so Mike, what's your millennial view anyway? What's your eschatological view on Revelation anyway? As if I'm going to teach God, of course not. But... He's not going to ask me that question. You know what he's going to ask me? Mike, did you believe in Jesus and follow my son? And how did you do it? How did you live for me? That's the question. And so at the end of every message, I need us to dig into that so what question. I need us to ask, so what does this mean? How am I supposed to live now in view of this? Okay? Awesome. The day of the Lord. I'm not going to do this today. But as we go through this series, I am going to be touching on these things, and you're going to see how they are a part of what the Bible calls the day of the Lord or the day of God. They would be as follows. The coming, now forgive me, just like the word fellowship, many of you know the Greek word because it's kind of, you find it in books. That's the Greek word koinonia, right? Okay, what's the Greek word for love? Does anybody know? There's a couple of them. What, what would some of them be? Agape. Phileo, okay, or Philadelphia, which is brotherly love. Okay, you know some Greek already. Wow, and I didn't even teach you this. But here's a Greek word you're going to want to learn, and that is the Greek word parousia. That's another word that if you read 
uh, in books that try to appeal to the mind and really educate, they're going to use this word, parousia. It's simply the Greek word translated coming. So the parousia, the parousia with a definite article, the parousia, the coming of the Lord. Another thing is our being gathered to, and we're actually going to be looking at these two today. The destruction of the ungodly. I believe we're going to see that today as well. The resurrection and the judgment. Now understand that the resurrection takes place here and after, he, well, here as well. Okay, so the resurrection and the judgment. The present heavens and the earth are going to be destroyed. Scripture makes this clear. Second Peter 3 talks about that being the day of the Lord. Also talks it about, about, also talks about it as the day of God. And it talks about the new heavens and the new earth. So, there are a few other things that we're going to uh, tackle, and that would be things like the Great Tribulation. We're going to look at that next week. There is a very specific view held in the Left Behind series. They have a very particular view of the Great Tribulation that I disagree with. You're going to see for me as I walk you through Revelation and some other passages what that difference is. I'm not going to say it's huge, but it's significant enough. We're going to have to look at the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2, also called the beast, I believe. Some people call him the Antichrist, whichever. Um, and then the battle of Armageddon. Yeah, we're going to tackle some of these topics, okay? But we're not going to get into all of Revelation. We're going to look at some of them. But we do need to ask that so what question. So today, we're going to look at the rapture question. And before I read it, I just want you to know, I'm using this term in a very specific way. I realize that there are people who are pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, and just, the, just that this question is just a tribulation in itself. The truth, though, is most people use this word, ra the rapture, to refer to a secret coming of the Lord, a secret parousia of the Lord, seven years prior to his second coming, so that they would view two comings. The first one is to the atmosphere or the air. The second is Jesus coming all the way to the earth. There is a second view, and it's synonymous with, this, with the second coming. And so I'm just going to let you know right up front, that's the view that I hold. And I'm going to be gracious as we ask this rapture question. Please take notes. And if you have questions that I don't answer, I would love to entertain those questions. I'm just not going to be able to have time during the sermon, and I'm already seeing that my time is moving quickly. So we've got a lot to cover. When I use the word rapture, please understand, I don't want to offend you if you are a... Um, a post-tribulation rapture person. Um, that's kind of, I guess, where I am, but I just, I see the rapture and the second coming is the same. So I just use the term the rapture to refer to that view that holds that there's a secret coming of the Lord seven years prior to the coming of the Lord as opposed to the second coming of the Lord, all right? Just to distinguish between them. Okay, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting with verse 13. Are you there with me? Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Now, this phrase, fallen asleep in him, is kind of code, if you will, for someone who has physically died, but they have gone to be with the Lord. Okay? 
So, and that's how Paul is using it here. They've, they physically died sometime in the past. Their body went into the grave. Their spirit ascended to be with the Lord. And their spirit now is with Jesus. And when he comes back, they are coming with him. That may be you and me if Jesus tarries and we die before his coming. All right? Verse 18, excuse me, 15, according to, the word, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord, there's that phrase, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety... Destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you brothers are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. Now he's using metaphors here. Sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. He's using this metaphorically. I personally like the darkness, especially when I'm sleeping. But that's not what he's talking about, verse 6. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep. Now, he's using the word asleep here to refer to spiritual apathy. They're not following the Lord. So he's using this word a little differently than he did in verse chapter 4. Okay? So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. You see that contrast? Verse 7. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we, awake, whether we are awake or asleep, now he's using a sleep, as he did in chapter 4. We may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. A few things I want us to note here. Number one, what does he call this event? He calls it the day of the Lord, but he, he calls it the coming or the parousia of the Lord. Now notice the definite article there. The coming of the Lord. All right, we're going to come back to that. So th this is a very specific event. It's not just a coming of the Lord. See, if I were to say a coming, it's a coming or like another coming of the Lord. That means there's more than one. But this is very specific, definite article, the. This is the coming of the Lord, because there's only one. Do you see that? The coming of the Lord. I'm going to dig into that a little bit later. But it, it, it also tells us, if, if we're just good students and we're trying to glean observations, you go, remember, observations 
Then what's next? Interpretations and then applications. If we're good students, what are some observations here? Well, hey, you know what? When Jesus comes back, who's with him? Those who have died and their spirits have gone to be with him. They are now coming with Jesus. And it says the dead in Christ. That is, those who are coming with him, their spirits are with him. But where are their bodies? Their bodies have been buried six feet under. Their bodies are in the ground. Their bodies pretty much have decayed, turned to dust. Those bodies will rise first. They, this is called the resurrection, the resurrection of the righteous. Their bodies will join their spirit and they will have a spirit body. Just like Jesus when he rose from the dead. He said, here, touch my flesh and bones. It's something that you can feel and yet it was something that apparently could disappear. So Jesus' resurrection body is like the prototype. Obviously, he's God and we're not. But his resurrection body is the prototype for each of us. We will receive a resurrected body like his glorious one, Philippians 3.20. And so this is what's going to happen if, as our bodies join our spirits and we are resurrected. We're notice that there's, this is going to happen with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with a trumpet blast or a trumpet call. The dead in Christ are raised first, and then those who are alive, right? Like if Jesus were to come right now, you haven't died, at least not that I'm aware of. And just be careful. Don't fall asleep during this. I'm just kidding. The truth, though, is that we're alive. And if Jesus were to come back right now, we would immediately be changed and we would meet him in the air, body and spirit. Boom. We're going to be with him. It, it then talks about that as being caught up together. Do you see it in verse 17? We will be caught up together with them in the clouds. That is them, meaning those who are dead in Christ, they've resurrected, Jesus is there, and then we who are alive, we're going to be caught up with them. That in the, in, when Jerome in around 400 AD wrote the, um, the Vulgate, it was written in Latin, he used the word uh, raptus, not rapture. I'm, I'm not saying rapture. Okay, something very different. That's Jurassic Parkish. We're not. I'm not preaching on Jurassic Park. I am talking about rapture, not rapture. And so, consequently, this word raptus is where we get the word today, rapture. It says that we are going to meet him in the air, where the clouds are. He's going to come in the clouds and in the clouds in the air. That's where we who are alive and remain will be raptured up or caught up with him or snatched up with him, okay? By the way, this Greek word for caught up or snatched up or raptured is the word that's also used for Jesus when he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1. He was caught up into the clouds. He was raptured, okay, just so that you know. I don't want to make a big deal about this word. Sometimes it does mean a forceful, uh, aggressive, violent type of snatching. I can assure you it's not that here. Because it doesn't always imply that. I don't think Jesus was like raptured so violently up into the air. He just, he rose. Okay? So I, I don't want to go into this concept of violence that many people do. It's just simply we are snatched up. We're caught up with the Lord 
in the air. Interesting. Who is the prince of the power of the air, according to the Bible? Who's the prince of the power of the air, or the ruler of the power of the air? See, that's Satan. I, I don't think this is just coincidental that where Jesus comes back and that's where we meet him in the air, that that happens to be the realm, if you will, that Paul chooses to say that's where the devil rules. Well, guess who rules now is what Paul is kind of saying. When he comes, his time is over. Jesus will rule and reign and destroy the kingdom of Satan. And in Revelation, it says, and, his, and the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of his Christ and of our God. And as Jesus comes into the air, then that's it. There, there is this, we are caught up with him. Now, there's more to this that I'm going to get into, but I do need to move along. We will be with him, it says, forever. Church, you know, if, if we're alive, even if we're dead and our bodies are in the ground, our bodies will now be joined with him. We'll be with him forever. Forever. How long is that, church? If you can start counting right now. I'll let you know when you reach that number that says forever, okay? Good luck with that. It's like forever. There's no end. I look forward to that, being with Jesus forever. I mean, I love living this life. But man, can I hardly wait to be with Jesus forever. This, this life, as much as I enjoy my family, when I'm with my family in heaven, guess what? No more arguments. I'm not, not that we, I mean, we never get into arguments. I'm not saying we argue. But no more of the Mike Curtis flesh. Gone. Done with. Sin has been conquered, but now sin will no longer be present. Hallelujah. I look forward to that day. I get weary dealing with the flesh. I don't know about you. You're probably weary dealing with my flesh too. But I'm weary dealing with my flesh. So I am going to live with Jesus forever. Now, here is, there's two main reasons why people adhere to the rapture. One of them is found in here. Now, there's, don't get me wrong, there, there's probably more, but there are two main ones. This one is that Jesus comes to the air, and it says, and so we shall be with the Lord forever. Here is my question. What happens next? According to the text, don't look anywhere else, according to the text, look in your Bibles, what happens next? Do we go to the earth? Do we go to heaven? Guess what, church? The text does not tell us. It's an assumption that, hey, if we're going to be with the Lord forever, I guess we go to heaven, right? Well, can I, excuse me, can I just suggest that maybe we don't for two reasons. Number one, whenever a dignitary would come to a city, Generally speaking, the people or the officials or representatives would go out to meet him. He wouldn't leave. They would escort him into the city. Do you happen to know an example of that in the Bible? I hope you do because I preached on it just a few weeks ago. It's called Palm Sunday. Remember those who had heard of Lazarus' resurrection? It was like, whoa, no 
way. And Jesus is coming. What happened? They went out to meet him. And where did they go? They followed Jesus into the city, praising him, Hosanna, save us. How ironic, right? Into the city, and he goes to the temple. They follow him into the city. Now, I'm not using that as an argument saying, therefore, you know, the rapture must be wrong because he does come all the way to the earth. I'm not suggesting that, but I'm going to suggest to you that, that there's something to that. I'm also going to suggest that chapter 5, verses 1 through 3 do tell us that he comes to the earth because destruction follows. L- let me just read those verses again. Dear, my, now brothers, about times and dates, we don't want you to write, we don't, we're not going to write to you. May 21st, mm -mm. 1988, 40 years after Israel became a state, mm -mm. nope, not going to get into dates. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord includes the parousia. I'm going to get to that in just a moment, so hang on. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. I realize some people believe that this is the great tribulation. You know, the rapture comes, and then there's the great tribulation, and then Jesus actually comes all the way to the earth, and Revelation 19 says that he destroys all the wicked, including the beast and the false prophet, casts them into hell. I'm going to suggest to you that this is that destruction that happens at the end of the age. Now, I want you to turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, if you would. It's only a few pages to the right. It was probably written only a few months after 1 Thessalonians. But in 2 Thessalonians, I hope I said 2 Thessalonians, did I? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Follow me now. It's concerning the coming of the Lord. The, the, there's one. The coming of the Lord, the parousia of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and our being gathered to him. And we read both of these in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So Paul is kind of reminding them. He also, by the way, used the phrase, the day of the Lord, in chapter 5, verse 1. And we're going to see how he brings us together. So concerning the coming, or the parousia of the Lord Jesus Christ, and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying that, hey guys, you missed it. I'm sorry, I'm reading into this. That the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion, the Greek word there is apostasia, it can mean rebellion, so either a physical rebellion or a spiritual rebellion, okay? Until the rebellion, the apostasia occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. We're going to look at that a little bit later. The parousia, our gathering to him, is a part, he's saying, of the day of the Lord. So don't be afraid if you've heard that the day of the Lord is coming or has already happened. Guys, it hasn't. What is his reason? His reason is, isn't because the church is already gone. Because Paul's writing the letter, hello. <laughs> so of course they haven't been raptured. But he says the day of the Lord hasn't come. And there's two things he lists that must precede the day of the Lord. So I'm going to suggest to you that this idea of the day of the Lord encompasses these things. And right now he's talking about these two. The 
parousia. I want you to imagine when you were in grade school, you're reading about World War I and World War II. Let's just say, for example, there is an entire chapter on World War I and World War II. I'm the author, and I'm trying to talk to you about these two wars, and I start talking about the war, the war, the war, the war. And you are so confused. You are in your mind thinking, which war are you talking about? Because you're talking about World War I, you're talking about World War II, and now all you're talking about is the war. Which one are you talking about? I would be pretty confused. So the way most authors do it, so they don't have to constantly say World War I, they can do WW1, WW2, that's pretty simple. Or they can talk about the war, it's just that they have to talk about World War I in one chapter, and it's just about World War I, and then they can talk about the war. Or they talk about World War II in another chapter, and then they talk about the war. Okay, do you get that? That's pretty simple. That's just how we use the definite article, right? I want you to look at verse 8. And then the lawless one, that is the man of lawlessness, will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. That is the coming of him. That's how the Greek reads. So the definite article is here. The coming of him. We just say his coming and so we don't use the definite article. But it's here. When will this, verse 8, when will this happen? That's going to happen at the end of the age, Revelation 19. When Jesus comes back, he's going to overthrow the man of lawlessness or the beast and the false prophet and cast them into hell where they belong for all their wickedness and rebellion and the war that they made against the church, the followers of Jesus. So here's my question. We're in one chapter. We're only eight verses apart, and he uses the parousia twice is he talking about two different comings if he is i need to be honest with you i am confused i'm not sure which one he's talking about i have to read between the lines i don't know if verse one is talking about a secret rapture seven years prior to the parousia and my question is then why do the authors of scripture use the definite article with both of them this gets confusing we must, if you're going to talk about the rapture separate, then do that. But he talks about it just eight verses apart. And so I'm going to suggest that he is talking about one coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord. The parousia. Okay? And so consequently, when I hear a teaching of 1 Thessalonians 4, I would say, see, that's not the rapture or you know, that secret coming of the Lord seven years prior to the coming. See, that's the parousia he's talking about. That's the coming of the Lord. If, if I were to show you my prophecy chart, it would be so simple. So very simple. It's not so simple when we start parsing and when we come across problems, you can tell that something is not a strong theory when the charts get bigger and bigger and bigger and there's an exception. And okay, we're talking about that. So, and, and we patch it up. Just be, that's one of the hallmarks. It's, we use the term Occam's razor. Are you familiar with that? That means the simplest answer is generally the best one. It's not always true, but I'm going to suggest th the day of the Lord is not real complicated. 
but we can make it that way. Okay, so I want us to look at Matthew 24. This is another passage in Scripture that speaks of the coming of the Lord. And it's during Jesus' um, discourse during Passion Week. And it's not that Jesus was passionate during that week. I suppose maybe he was. But passion means suffering. So it's that week prior to his death on the cross. We don't know what day this is. But he's talking about the end. What are the signs his disciples ask that lead up to the end and the signs of the end of the age or coming? So here's in verse 30. Are you there with me? Matthew 24, verse 30. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great authority. I think... And I could be wrong on this. I realize some people believe this is 70 AD. I'm not going to talk about that. But generally, those who don't adhere to that, they would say that whether they believe in the rapture or as myself, just the second coming of the Lord, they would say this is about the second coming of the Lord. Okay? Uh, I don't know of anyone who sees this as the rapture. And it's because all nations will see him and they will mourn. Now, I get it when people talk about the rapture. They generally say when the loud command and the shout of, of the archangel and the, the, the trumpet blast that only the church hears those. I, I disagree with that, but, but that's how they explain it. So, okay, all right. But, but they all recognize that, hey, when you see that sign of the Son of Man coming in the clouds and you begin to mourn because guess what? It is too late. There is mourning. He's here right now, like a thief in the night. So consequently, they, they do not believe, those who hold to the rapture do not believe that this is the rapture. This is the second coming of the Lord, okay? So Matthew 24, 30 to 31, this is the second coming of the Lord. There is a trumpet blast. Do you see that in the text there? Trumpet blast that happens at this point. Don't do that to me. All right. So that's, that, that's fairly clear. Now, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 15. Again, I'm going to go pretty quickly here. It says, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. The dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. I'm not going to read any more. I would love to, but for the sake of time. This is, according to those who hold to the rapture, this is the rapture. And they would suggest that because Paul says we. If I were to use the word we, am I just talking about you guys, or am I talking about me too? See, that's generally what we means. It means you and I. So Paul is saying we, hey, you and I will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. So if there are two comings, which one will Paul be raised at? See, the first one. So I would venture to say that about 99.9% of believers throughout all the ages, if there are two comings, they're going to be resurrected in the first one, commonly called the rapture, Okay. So, and then a small percentage that are getting saved during the seven-year tribulation, when Jesus comes back, they will be resurrected, okay? But Paul is suggesting he's a part of this, 
If there are two comings, he would be a part of the first one, the rapture. So here's my question. Look for the word trumpet. So this, is, this would be considered the rapture along with 1 Thessalonians 4, and there's a trumpet call here as well. What type of a trumpet call is it? Can someone just tell me? It is the last trumpet. So there's a trumpet blast here. There's a trumpet blast here. Can I ask you, which is the last one? See, it's not this one. It is this one. This is the last trumpet. If there are two, the second coming of Jesus is the last trumpet. And so I'm going to suggest to you another reason why I believe that they are one and the same is that their trumpet blasts are calls to battle. They are calls to de- give an announcement. Hey, there is, the king is here and he has something to say. We're blowing the trumpet. He is coming. He's coming through the gates. They're blowing the trumpet. This is it. The king has come. There is a trumpet blast, but 1 Thessalonians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15 says that this resurrection in which you will be changed in a twinkling of an eye, and Paul includes him in that, is going to happen at the last trumpet call, not the second to the last trumpet call. The last. And so for this reason, I believe that these are speaking about the very same thing. They're both the last trumpet. Now, this doesn't use the term last trumpet, but if it's his second coming, of course it is. I I need to continue quickly through this. If you would, Matthew, go back to Matthew, if you would, Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 42. And 41. Now, some of you, I'm about to ask you a question and I'm going to date you. Not, not date as in guy, girl, date. I'm talking about you will, will, will find out how old you are. So you don't have to raise your hand on this. How many of you have ever heard the song, I wish we'd all been ready? How many of you have ever heard, I wish we'd all been ready? A man and wife asleep in bed. She hears a noise and turns her head. He's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. Remember? You don't remember. Oh, my goodness. That was loud. We sang that at Bible study in the 70s every week. And I think I still have it memorized, but I wrote it down just in case I, I did forget. I'm going to read it to you. Well, I already... A man and wife asleep in bed. She hears a noise and turns her head. He's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill, one disappears and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. Church, this is truth here, by the way. I wish we'd all been ready. Unfortunately, the, the perspective is a rapture. And I say unfortunately from my perspective. I don't mean to insult anybody here by saying that. From my perspective, I, I, I think they got it mixed up here a bit. But it concludes there's no time to change your mind. Guess what, church? When Jesus comes back, there's not. There is just not there's not seven years there's no time the sun has come and you have been left behind now that phrase left behind that the movie series comes from comes from this passage right here verse 40 two men this is talking about the hour and day no one knows when the son of man will return two men will be in the field one will be taken and the other left 
Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Did you get that? So here's my question. Where will they be taken? Think about that. Where will they be taken? Now, according to this song, they'll be taken to heaven. Where will they be taken? Now, I, I tricked you. I didn't read the two verses before that because they actually tell us. Can you follow me? Verse 38. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. There's just eight people, including Noah. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Where were they taken? To destruction. They weren't taken to heaven. They were taken to destruction. Their lives were taken. They were destroyed. Who's left? The godly. And that holds up biblically. I'm going to get to that in just a moment. But who's left? The Christians are left. Who's taken? The ungodly. And they're destroyed. See, this isn't about the rapture. This is about the second coming of the Lord. But in the second coming of the Lord, the ungodly are destroyed first. And then the godly are taken to heaven. Now that throws some of you off a little bit. So I'm going to need to unwrap that in just a moment here. But I'm going to cover just a few things. All right, let me look at my time. Ah, I am running out of time. Okay. Fast forward. Did you realize that 30% of Jesus' parables are about the end of the age? 30%. But in none of those is a different coming of the Lord referred to. He just talks about his coming, and he never distinguishes between two different comings. Not one time. It would be nice if a text in the New Testament were to talk about both of these comings. There's the rapture, and then there's the second coming. But we don't have anything in Scripture that talks about this. And so I'm wondering if maybe we're looking at different passages here and different passages here, and the author is wanting us to realize that they're one and the same, but we're treating them separately when maybe we shouldn't, that they are one and the same, the parousia. Turn with me to Revelation 3.10. I'm just going to be super quick with this. This is the second reason why people would adhere to the rapture, and that is because there is a great tribulation that Revelation talks about, and Matthew 24 and other gospel passages talk about. Well, I'm moving so slowly. Here we go. And... If I go over just a few minutes, will you forgive me? Are we good? I may go over like five minutes. I'm going to do my best. And, and probably, anyway, I'm going to do my best. Revelation 3.10. And it, this is a letter that's written to the church in Philadelphia. It's one of seven. And it says, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial. This Greek word trial is different than the word tribulation found in Revelation 7. Regardless, he's going to keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Now, the second reason, main reason, there's a couple, but the second main reason why people believe in two different comings is because if, they, if we don't, 
then that means we as Christians go through whatever tribulation or great tribulation that Revelation and other passages talk about occur on the earth. We go through that. And there's very strong sentiment that we don't. And I understand that. You know, it's interesting that when judgments came upon Egypt, the followers of God were spared. And that's one of the arguments that's given. But they are not always spared. As a matter of fact, usually they aren't. And they go through it. But their hope remains in Jesus. So here's my question. Since you have kept my command, who is you in this passage? Would it not be the Philadelphians? At the very time that Paul is writing, it's not to the second generation because the hour of trial has probably already come and gone. But see, here's what's happened. You is the Philadelphians. Jesus, through John, is writing to a very specific group. And so I'm going to word it this way. This passage is written to the Philadelphians for us. It's not written to the Philadelphians and to that generation that gets raptured. It's not. That's not how we treat Scripture. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he wrote to the Thessalonians. He didn't write to Mike Curtis, but he wrote for Mike Curtis. So what I need to do is I need to look at the circumstances surrounding the occasion for that writing and realize that occasion, those circumstances are going to be different than mine. So what I need to do is I need to take what's Paul says to the Thessalonians, as my example, and I extract principles for me. Because my circumstances are different, Paul's not writing to me, but he is writing for me. Those who would hold to the rapture would look at this and say, he is writing to them, but he is also writing to that one very specific generation as well. And I would suggest, but see, this breaks a very basic hermeneutical principle that is a Bible study principle. It's written to someone else, but it's for, it's for all of us. It's not just for that generation that sees Christ coming. It is for all of us throughout generations. The very specific example is that the Jews, synagogue of Satan, were persecuting the Christians, and yet the Christians held on. Even though they were weak, they were given grace, they were given strength, so that, and this is amazing, it doesn't happen all the time, but God, Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen to you Philadelphians. See all this persecution. See how weak you are, and you're still holding on to me. That is amazing, and I, I love that. So here's what I'm going to do. Those Jews that are persecuting you will see my love and my affection for you. They will see my sovereign hand of protection upon your life, and they will fall at your feet and say, truly, Jesus loves you. Except in here it says, I, which is Jesus, I love you. And the, these Jews are going to say, Jesus loves you. So what does that mean? That means they are coming to this point because of their testimony, church, principle right here, because of their testimony in trial, the world, the Jews, will believe in the Messiah. They will get it. There's going to be conviction. This is the this is the man that we crucified. Or that my parents or grandparents, they, we missed it. They will fall at your feet. That's not going to happen throughout the generations. But here's the principle. Church, if you remain faithful, 
And in trial, you remain faithful and you keep looking to the Lord, not shaking your fists. God, why are you doing this? I don't understand. And turning our backs on him. That's not what they did. They remained steadfast. Guaranteed they didn't understand why they were receiving so much persecution, except for the very fact they were standing for Jesus. But God... Can't life just be a little bit easier? Haven't you ever wondered that, Jesus, why is life hard? Why couldn't it be just a little bit easier? And Jesus is speaking to you right now through your pastor. Remain faithful to him. Allow the world that's looking on seeing just how hard your life is and shine Jesus that they may see your good works and glorify my Father which is in heaven. That's how we are to be his light. That's what these people did. That's what the Philadelphians did. And it so impacted the very people that were persecuting them. If you read martyrs and their testimonies about how they stood faithful to Jesus, even when people killed them, you go out and you look amongst the crowd of people who are onlooking and saying, kill him, kill him. And the Spirit of God begins to minister to them. And so many of them, their testimony is, I became a Christian because as I was watching someone like Polycarp being burned at the stake, a miracle happened. He remained so faithful and he was so just, he never denied it. He never turned his back on Jesus. He remained faithful to the end. Man, that is devotion. And they may also know about how Polycarp lived for Jesus, sold out, filled with love. Every word that he spoke, encouragement and love. He was a changed man because of the Jesus he served. I tell you what, so many people come to Christ when they look on and the one they're persecuting dies. And it so undoes them. It so pierces their heart about how faithful and devoted they were. Kephas Simpangi, back in the early 1700s under the reign of Idi Amin. Idi Amin destroyed thousands and thousands of Christians, ki killed them in, in ethnic cleansing. The church called the Redeemed, just, it was led by a guy who was a seminar, I mean a, a university professor at the nearby State University. Not a pastor, but he started a Bible study in his university and he began preaching the gospel and then he began, a, a, just started a church. It grew to 14,000. People who had killed members in that church under the direct orders of Idi Amin visited and on one occasion, two of them were going to kill Kepha Simpangi. And they came to him, followed him from the service to his door. And I, I want, I'm not going to get into the whole thing. But Kepha turned around and the men said, we are here. Not because we want to, but under the direct orders of Idi Amin. And we are here to take your life. And with gun in hand, both of them testified they could not pull the trigger. They could not. They were unable. They eventually, at that moment... They gave their hearts to Christ. They looked around during the service an hour, two hours prior, and they saw widows whose husbands they personally had killed. 
And it so moved them that these widows exalted the very God that they were willing to give their lives to and their husbands did give their lives to. There was a devotion to Jesus Christ. And church, this is what we are called to, to follow Jesus with a passion, to follow him even when it is absolutely hard and we feel like, I just can't do it. I can't take another step. It is Life is just too hard. I get that. I have been there. And yet, according to this passage, Jesus says, guys, Philadelphians, you still pressed in. You still did it, and you shined my light. And so because of you, you impacted these persecutors, and they're going to fall at your knee, fall at your feet, and say, truly, Jesus the Messiah loves you. The guy that was crucified, if this is 90 AD, 60 years earlier, he loves you. That tells me they believe he's the Messiah and they believe he's been raised from the dead. How else could Jesus love them? I realize that people look at this and, and, and some people say this, this is the rapture. I'm, I'm just going to suggest that is in context. It is the Philadelphian church in the early 90s because of what they did, because they shined Jesus so much. There's going to be a trial that's going to come, probably a persecution, but God is going to honor them. This is not a promise given to the other six letter, uh, other six churches, but to the Philadelphians. You shined your light. I'm going to protect you. It is written to the Philadelphians of that day for you and me. For you and me. There's more that I could say. I realize that my time is up and I want to conclude one of my concerns and I'm not going to make a big deal about this, but one of my concerns about the rapture is that if it happens seven years prior to the second coming of the Lord, how many people do you think will be raptured in, if it happens in our day? Hundreds of millions. Hundreds of millions. Let, watch Left Behind series. They show it. Hundreds of millions throughout the world. What would you think as an unbeliever especially with movies and books that proliferate the American market, I'd imagine pretty much the whole world, and suddenly 100 million people disappeared. Oh my goodness, the Bible's right. That guy who shared the gospel, he's right. Can you imagine how many people would be coming to Christ? What I'm more concerned about, and I praise God for how many would come to Christ, if this is true, but what I'm concerned about is people saying, you know what? Mike, I, I hear what you're saying, but I'm just going to wait until the rapture. And if the rapture happens, I'll believe. Now, of course, I'm not using that as some foolproof argument. Of course not. Because guess what? If he doesn't come, if he's not, the rapture doesn't happen in our day, they better make a decision. I just don't want the world to wait. Because the Bible says now is the day of salvation. Now. Not tomorrow, not seven years later, now, now. When Jesus comes, he's going to come like a thief in the night. 
you and I will not be surprised by it. That's what I read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're not going to be surprised. We're going to realize that Jesus is coming back. But when he comes back, I don't believe we have seven more years if we're left, left behind to repent. That is it. There is no time to change your mind. That's it. It's done. Life is over. Now we get graded, so to speak. And those who have followed Jesus, followed him, not just said it, but followed him, they will go to eternal life in heaven with him forever. That's what we just read, 1 Thessalonians 4. But those who rebel, those who say, no, I'm not going to follow Jesus, even though in creation it is very obvious that there's a God, Romans 1 says no man will be without excuse. No man will have an excuse. But Consequently, church, it is urgent that we share the message of Jesus coming. There's so many points of application that we can get into that is over the, well, on the other side, that we are going to get into over the next couple of weeks. So here's what I'm going to leave you with. What are you doing, especially in the midst of trial, to shine Jesus? The world wants something that's authentic. They're wearied by the talk, 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 and the lack of evidence in people's lives. If there were a trial today about your Christianity, my prayer is that you would be thoroughly convicted. That you would be found guilty of following Jesus. And the evidence would be ample. Amen. Can you stand with me? If we could just allow this to be a, a sobering moment for us. As we're just reflecting upon the message. Regardless of where you come out in the end of the rapture, second coming, he is coming back. And will you be part of that number that he will call and he will catch you up with him and so be with him forever? Are you living for him now? So Jesus, we just pray. Look, at our, look into our hearts, Lord. We can do all the talk, but you know our hearts. I'm just asking, Father, if we are not ready, please, tonight, make us ready. You made me ready when I was 14, and I surrendered to the lordship of my Jesus Christ. I just pray, Father, may all of us make that choice. I will follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. When he comes... There's no more time to change my mind. So, Father, I just pray, may this be a sobering moment for us. Whose side are we on? Who are we following? Are we following the world, the desires of my heart? The heart's a pretty bad thing to follow. Or are we following Jesus? So, Father, we do, I just ask, today, this week. May we live for you. Live for you. Please, God. Seal these words in our heart, I ask, Lord. In Jesus' name.